Hey there. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to the last question. Sorry, I'm going to adjust my volume here. I'm using a different computer, and uh, it already sounds strange in the headphones. Anyway, welcome back to the last question. Uh, recording here on a Tuesday night. This episode should be out Wednesday, May 8th, 2022, for those of you keeping track. But whenever you listen to this, whenever you come across it, Thanks for giving the show and this episode a shot. Um, today we're going to talk, uh, today it's just going to be you and me. I feel like every episode, um, hang on, I need, to, I need to set this volume differently. I can, I can hear all of the headphones. Here we go. This is a bit better. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, I feel like every episode I record, Lately, anyway, uh, I am promising you guests, and the truth of it is, I am working on guests, but I'm also not of the habit or not of the mind that I'm going to exert pressure, you know, like a lot of people might, like, you know, media companies traditionally do, right? We need to get this interview done, we need to make a production schedule or a release schedule. Uh, I'm, I'm not of that mind, that's not why I started doing the podcast, I think for a lot of people that's not the case either, so... Um, it, it's going to be you and me probably the next couple weeks, maybe the next few weeks. Uh, I do have a number of guests that I am working on, but a number of them are still working through either spring semesters at schools, or a couple of them are getting ready to leave the military, and we're going to talk about transition and their experiences on active duty. That's going to come in the summertime. Um, I'm also looking to bring on a couple of people that are going to kind of help provide, shed some light and provide some perspective um, on the political moment. So if any of those interest you, stay tuned to the show for the next few weeks, next few months. Um, I am excited for some of these conversations. I'm excited to talk to some of these folks. But I'm also well aware that, you know, just like me, just like you, they've got lives to live, kids in some cases, full-time jobs and about every case, right, and all sorts of things going on. Certainly the ones that are approaching the military transition have plenty to think about. I know that all too well, and perhaps you do too. So the last thing you want to do is try to pressure them into having some conversation just to make a schedule. So anyway, I say all that to say, you just got me today. Um, you, you know, so for, so for context, I'm recording the night prior. It's Tuesday, May 17th. This episode will release on Wednesday, May 8th. And when I woke up this morning, I had planned to record at some point this afternoon or evening. And I and I knew what I would record. I, I keep a track of episode ideas and then over time make notes as to, as to how an episode is going to get built. Uh, or if it's guest related, if it's an interview, I'm making notes on what we need to talk about or what um, they might want to talk about. Something to publicize, a, uh, an editorial or a book project or whatever the case is. So when I woke up this morning, I had a sense of what I wanted to talk about. And then, as often happens, um, during a midday workout, I'm listening to a short podcast clip from War on the Rocks, which is a popular online platform for national security, international affairs type issues. Um, pretty well read by a whole host of people, a variety of people, academics, uh, regular professionals, um, everyday Americans, 
uh, and also senior military leadership, which is particularly interesting because War on the Rocks does not shy away from publishing things that are critical of the military leadership and the military organization. For those of you who are familiar with the platform, you might remember two, three years ago, maybe more, I'm trying to remember where my where I was assigned. I think I was in Dallas. So this was 2017, 2018. You might remember uh, Ned Stark and his series of articles published on War on the Rocks, really digging into how the Air Force ran its talent management program, or rather did not run its talent management program, certainly not well. Ned Stark turned out to be an active duty colonel, 06, in the intelligence directorate at headquarters Air Force. His name was Jason Lamb, who now works for U.S. Space Force in talent management. So, but his articles were, they were very good, they were honest, and for the most part, I think they exposed realities that just about everyone knew, no one appreciated, but also everyone was just resigned to accept. The bureaucracy is what it is, the machine is what it is. You know, to get ahead, you have to brown nose the right person. You have to say the right things. If you can't be innovative or flexible and try new things, you can't make mistakes. And all the same habit patterns that are built over time. The incentive system was messed up. The promotion system was messed up. The award system was messed up. And um, Jason Lamb, under the pseudonym Ned Stark, Shout out to those of you Game of Thrones fans. Took me forever to figure out that's where it came from because I'm not a Game of Thrones person. But um, he called out a, a lot of that stuff. And reportedly, General David Goldfein at the time, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, reached out to him directly through War on the Rocks editors to have a conversation. And they apparently had an in-person conversation that was apparently fruitful. In any case, I bring this up because... One of the reasons I appreciate the platform is that they do not shy away from these types of articles, these types of stories. And so today, I'm on the rower and I'm listening to a pretty short podcast episode. And I had it pulled up and then I lost the window. One second. And you may have already listened to this, and if you did, good on you. If you didn't, I would highly encourage you. Highly, highly encourage you. Highly, highly, highly encourage you. I think you should absolutely go listen to it if you are at all interested in defense and future challenges in national security. So recently, Ryan Evans, who's CEO of the company that owns Born the Rocks, founder of the platform and a, and a senior editor, sat down with Steve Blank, who is, among other people, among other things, one of the, quote, key architects of the Hacking for Defense program. Hacking for Defense now, according to, to Mr. Blank, to Dr. Blank, um, I think he's a doctor, I think he's a PhD, he's an academic at Stanford. But the um, Hacking for Defense program now exists at about 60 schools and was a mechanism for getting students, college students involved in innovation that supports defense, and now to a larger scope, to a wider scope, uh, public policy and public service. So at Ohio State, for instance, the Hacking for Defense program morphed into Rapid Innovation for Public Impact. And so 
uh, our College of Public Affairs and the Patel Center for Science, Engineering, and Public Policy host a course twice per year, so once per semester, that counts as a capstone for a number of departments, and they put students together in teams deliberately to where the students are from different disciplines, engineering, philosophy, mathematics, natural sciences, sociology, whatever the case would be. It's a mixed team, and they look at wicked problems, quote-unquote wicked problems. I think I talked last season a while back about the book Range, uh, David Epstein, I believe. In the book Range, he talks about kind versus wicked scenarios or kind versus wicked problems. And that book does a lot of work actually debunking the 10,000 hour rule that was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers. But it doesn't totally defeat the premise uh, or defeat the argument. The issue is the 10,000 hour rule works great in kind environments where the action is repetitive and pattern specific. Playing golf, for instance. Tiger Woods is Tiger Woods because he spent well more than 10,000 hours practicing, taking different shots, using different irons, figuring out how to use his driver, all of that kind of stuff. At the same time, Roger Federer, who's this, who's this almost antagonist in the, in the initial uh, introductory story to range, is an excellent tennis player, one of the best in the world, but in fact did not grow up a tennis fiend. He grew up playing all sorts of sports, right? So he built not deep but broad experience and knowledge. Tiger Woods, conversely, built not broad but very deep experience and knowledge. Okay, so anyway, we bring these students in, and by definition, they are they are looking to solve a wicked problem. So we have private public sector sponsors. These are people from all over the place, corporate spaces, automakers, aerospace companies, defense organizations, inside the government, outside the government. They submit problems uh, to the center director and the team that runs the course. And the team curates and figures out which problems make sense, how they can match it to the teams, to the students. Some of the students sometimes come in with objectives that are driven by other programs in the university, so there's work to do there to deconflict some of that stuff. Ultimately, what the students get is, is experiential learning, right? Ex experience building a solution to a real problem that goes well beyond just sitting in class staring at PowerPoint slides. It's a cool program. It has morphed certainly over time. It evolves depending on the school. Um, but hacking for defense at its core was getting students involved, solving wicked problems, and innovating at as large a scale as you could manage, but at the same time, much faster than what DOD itself can manage or what the government itself can manage. Probably not a shock to you, right, to hear that DOD is, is probably one of the worst organizations on earth when it comes to getting new stuff done fast. So, so this sort of dovetails with what I was already going to talk about, but I'm listening to this podcast episode, and it's only about 18 minutes, so you won't lose too much time. Maybe maybe listen to it on your, on your drive-in to work or home from work uh, tomorrow. But the title of the episode, 
of a quick post online is, the U.S. military might be more like Russia's military than you think. So here's, so one of Steve Blank's assertions early on is watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine and watching the Russians get bogged down on the road, right, a 40 to 50 vehicle column stalling out on the highway to Kiev, running out of gas, running out of food, running out of morale. And then the, the Russian ground forces and special forces still failing to hold on to, despite five or six separate invasion routes into the country and Belarus serving as a launching point and an ally and now an ostensible satellite of Russia. Despite all of that advantage, despite Russia essentially owning Crimea, so a southern approach to Ukraine and being in a position to cut off southern approaches to the Black Sea, right, and Ukraine's major port at Odessa. They had all of these positional advantages. But according to Steve Blank, what we watched unfold was an army and a military built for the 20th century fighting against a more agile, more technically capable, more flexible, adaptable, and ready 21st century military force. We're watching a 20th century Russia fight a 21st century Ukraine. And in his words, the results are in, it doesn't look good for the 20th century military, even if Russia does eventually overwhelm Ukraine's defenses because of sheer numbers, sheer volume, they push in a whole bunch of reinforcements, they decide to conscript you know, several tens of thousands more soldiers to push into Ukraine, even if Russia ultimately subjugates the country. What we're watching and what we've been watching in these first couple of months is really a stalling out of what was once one of the world's most powerful and most, most feared, at least, militaries. And something interesting I thought that Blank says is during the Cold War, you know, we, we enjoyed some level of stability. You might credit nuclear weapons for that. We've talked a bit about that in the past. But one of the reasons why the Russians or the Soviet Union and the United States stayed more or less even in the arms race and in the race to to be in, a, in the race for advantage during the Cold War is that, yes, we both have different cultures, very different internal personal cultures, but we both had defense bureaucracies. We both had big government machines and big budgets that we're trying to wield and people wheeling and dealing and all the political bullshit that happens inside of a big government. Both of us had that. Say what you will about communism. I'm certainly not an endorser of communism, but at the end of the day, at some level, bureaucracy is bureaucracy, right? It still happens. There's still paperwork getting stamped and stapled somewhere. And regardless of what language is on it, it's still going to create the red tape that, that you might be used to, that a lot of us are used to. So he's making the point that now, as we are well into the 21st century, as we are well into an era that assumes the next major war will be fought, maybe not with nuclear weapons, but with electronic warfare, with 
so-called cyberspace weapons with network offense and defense. And it, it is increasingly likely that the belligerents will have AI-enabled weapons at their disposal, meaning we will have weapons that think for themselves, that can adapt for themselves, adapt to the environment that they're in, and that we're going to use AI-enabled equipment, hardware, software, to collect and synthesize intelligence, right? Because there's so much data out there. Just as a consumer, you know that there's so much data out there. Now think about how we can pull intelligence out of all of that data. If, if we think the Chinese are going to be an adversary at some point in the next 10 years, how will we effectively collect and synthesize data from a country of 1.5 billion people? Not all 1.5 billion would fight in their military, but given the amount of government control and the way China runs itself, stands to reason we, we may we might need to aggregate close to a billion people's worth of data to figure out what's happening where in that country, if it comes to that, right? If Taiwan becomes a question, if the South China Sea becomes a question, if safety of Japan becomes a question, or South Korea, right? Any one of these scenarios could drive something larger. Okay, so without going down that tangent, what I really want to hone in on or focus on, <clears throat> so I was listening to this podcast episode, and he's and he's he's basically saying, you know, if if we don't make significant changes into how we problem solve and innovate in the DoD, we are in a whole lot of trouble. I think he's right. I think he's correct to point this out. I think it should be blatantly obvious to people who have been inside the DoD structure for any length of time that. If there is one thing that the military doesn't seem to appreciate institutionally, at an individual unit level, sure. But institutionally, all of the all of the decks of cards are stacked against trying new things, against innovation. The institution doesn't appreciate flexibility, creative thinking, and frankly, failing and failing fast because there's really no incentive when you look at the way people are promoted, people are hired, people are given awards. Um, it's just not the way the system is set up. Steve Blank makes the point, he doesn't think it's about malice. There's no bad humans involved. It's simply the way the system is designed. And so we have to get serious about designing a different system. Ryan Evans makes a quick, a quick quip about, yeah, I've met a couple people, you know, there might be a couple bad people. I'm not going to dig into that. There are, I'm sure, people that are ill-intentioned sitting inside DOD. But I'm also willing to concede that they are probably not powerful enough to affect the entire organization. The problem is the system we have designed. It is not malice, but it is our willingness to succumb to inertia that we still have to fix. So there's three words that if you if you take nothing else from this conversation, if you take nothing else from what I'm saying here for the next few minutes, remember these three words. And particularly if you are responsible for other humans, remember these three words. Devolve, flex, fail. Devolve, flex, fail. 
So devolve. This one took me a long time to not only learn, but then figure out how best to articulate. Philosophically for me, if you, if you listen to the episode with Matthew Ditson, um, episode three, perhaps season two, I can't remember. It's a few episodes ago. Um, we, we talked about leadership philosophy, right? And one of the, one of the um, driving forces for, his, for him writing his book was the question, what is your leadership philosophy? And the idea that, you know, it's, it's a good thing to have, but we don't necessarily, there's nowhere that teaches you how to develop that and, and how to know that it's, that it's aligned with who you are, right? So over time, by accident, if nothing else, you come to work this out. And so for me, I've gotten to a point where mine is rather concise and it, and it now is pretty easy to answer to people because it, it has provided me a core tenet that I can operate from no matter the environment. For me, for me individually, not saying this has to be you, my leadership philosophy is to build my replacement. That's it. That's what leaders do. Now, I've had people push back on me before, right? Well, what do you mean your replacement? Do you want them to be better than you? Well, sure. And then they'll say, well, but are you actually the, the example of the best leader? Of course I'm not. So I don't want to get into a semantic back and forth. But another way of putting it that I, that I do appreciate, that I do like, it just doesn't come to mind as often, but I think it, it actually is probably better, is a, a leader's role is to put themselves out of a job or to make themselves obsolete, right? If a leader is doing his or her job, when they leave the environment, leave the office, leave the workspace, shit still happens, right? If the unit can't go to war without its commander, the commander failed, period. I'm not saying the commander shouldn't be leading from the front, shouldn't be willing to take troops into combat, into the battle space, but if a unit itself this is the lesson from We Were Soldiers, right? If you've never seen We Were Soldiers, there's a scene where Mel Gibson's character, he's, a, he's an army battalion commander, is training his men to jump out of uh, low-flying Hueys uh, under fire, right? So the helicopter hovers at like, whatever it is, three, four feet off the ground. You jump off, set a perimeter, the helicopter bugs out, and then you proceed to the objective. And in in one part of the scene, the next Huey comes in, and Mel Gibson's character, Colonel Moore, runs up to the helo, finds the the team leader on that helo, and just and like kind of hits him on the chest with a hand and says, "Bang, you're dead." What do you do to the next guy? He hesitates. Bang, you're dead. What do you do to the next guy? Get off the chopper, right? Guy makes a quick gut decision. They get off the chopper. And, and then after that ensues the lesson, right? In Colonel Moore's words, in the movie at least, uh, every man teach the person below you your job. Um, or, or I'll put it differently. It is your job to teach the man below you yours, what you do, and your job to learn the job of the person above you. Okay, the point is, it's not that you're interchangeable. If you mean to be a leader in any space, you have to be prepared 
to take your boss's place. And you have to, at the same time, prepare your next in line subordinate to take your place. That's what you do. It's not, it's not necessarily about tactical capabilities anymore. It's about people, period. It doesn't matter where you work, doesn't matter what you do at work, doesn't matter whether you manufacture stuff or you write stuff or you publish stuff or you're on TikTok with a team. I don't even, I don't know. It's all the same to me, by my argument, right? It's all the same. Build your replacement. So the first word, devolve, means devolve responsibility. When I started out in missiles at Minot, 2009, 2010, 2011, we were there for five years. And at one point, the numbered Air Force, the two-star headquarters, had lost so much trust in the operations force that to allow a two-person military police team to leave missile site after they had been guarding it so sometimes we would put military police on the site to guard the weapon if the alarm system had failed sometimes the electronics fail just like anything else sometimes the weather wreaks havoc with the sensor systems it's windy blowing wind blizzard conditions the whole bit right um, plenty of wildlife in the area so sometimes the sensor itself will be unreliable so we have to push military police out to the site and God love them, they, they will be out there for hours or days on end, right? 12-hour shifts sometimes, two people by themselves at this site. So if we get the alarm system working again, well then the capsule crew, the operators, can go through the motions to test the sensor. Sensor works. Let's let these folks go and get back home, get back to the alert facility, get food, get a shower, rest, whatever, right? Let's relieve them and get back to normal. Well, at one point, I think this was 2010 or 2011, the two-star headquarters lost so much trust in the operations force that uh, he mandated across the entire missile enterprise that it would take a colonel 06, the first 06 in your chain of command to release that military police team. The regulation stated a capsule crew member, so one of the lieutenants in the capsule who was responsible for that area of missiles, it's up to them. That was the standard, that's what the regulation said that came down from above the two-star, but of course, you can be more restrictive than your boss, not less. And they had lost so much trust in us that we were waking up full bird colonels at two in the morning, three in the morning, or catching them in the middle of a meeting, middle of the day, to, to release or move military police teams. Well, if you've been in the military, you know the answer to this. If I'm a second lieutenant and I have to have a conversation with the first colonel in my chain of command, am I just going to call him or her directly? Absolutely not, right? I have to go through three or four people to pre-check to pre 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 check whatever it is I'm going to say and whatever the, the indications are that I'm seeing on the screen so that I don't make everybody's boss and boss's boss and boss's boss's boss look bad because I made a mistake. I have to check my work five times before I get to that first 06. And this went on for a while. 
so that that is simply one example that was a symptom of a much deeper problem culturally in missile operations when people made mistakes when people made mistakes either trying to innovate and failed or not trying to innovate they they made they screwed up did a procedure wrong missed a step broke something broke some hardware whatever our tendency the institutional reaction was always to lift responsibility upward it was to take control away from the tactical level the lowest level operator and put it with someone i guess you would say more trustworthy or more competent or more capable or smarter right they would they would take the decision away from the lieutenants and the ncos and they would take it up to senior ncos and field grade officers and then if not them it ended up going to full bird colonels only oh sixes right not even chiefs e9s not even those folks right colonels as you might guess that doesn't help the trust factor it only makes things worse right because it's a it's a it's obvious it's given it's a given to the operations force that you don't trust us not to mention if you think about it if you're going to lift those decisions up high and you're going to force us to go through layer upon layer of of checking and double checking and triple checking yes you can make your trust but verify argument but the reality is you're actually going to incentivize shoddy work because there are so many safety nets and whether i mean to do it or not subconsciously i know my first assessment really doesn't matter because i'm about to get checked by five different big brothers and sisters before i talk to the colonel you're only going to incentivize weakness in the procedures weakness in the technical capability and shoddy work devolving responsibility by contrast places as much responsibility as legally possible as low as possible so when i got to warren when the missile community was going through all of its change and we were we were literally tearing up regs and, and rewriting things from scratch one of the few themes one of the few arguments i stuck to like white on rice was devolution of responsibility push everything as far down as humanly possible as far down as humanly possible for a multitude of reasons one your operators, your crew force, your workforce is always smarter than you think they are, always smarter than you give them credit for, and probably cares more than you think, if only you would give them the chance to prove it. That's one and two, I suppose. Point number three, you in fact do not have the capacity to make all of the decisions and to manage all of the tasks that your team does, more than likely. Because the reality is whatever you see them doing 
on the surface, whatever you can see them doing in a minute to minute basis, even if you're watching them like, like a hawk, is only the tip of the iceberg, right? You, and you might know exactly what lies beneath the surface of the waves, right? You, you might have been that person and then you got promoted internally to the team. Okay, fine. But as soon as you made it into that supervisor's position, just because you know what's below the, the water surface, right? Below the ocean surface, underneath the tip of the iceberg, just because you know what all that baggage is, doesn't mean you have time to deal with it because you're dealing with baggage from your boss. Now you're answering to his or her needs and his or her problems, and you don't have time, you don't have the mental capacity to worry about the shit that your team should be doing on their own and probably can if you would trust them to do it and back off. We failed miserably at this for years in the community. And I, and I know people elsewhere in other industries, non-military that have failed at this to varying degrees. And I, and I get it. As a leader, as a supervisor, and a manager, and as a manager, whatever you want to call it, it is uncomfortable to push responsibility down. It is uncomfortable to realize. It is uncomfortable to realize that you are responsible for events, for tasks, for actions about which you know nothing and over which you control nothing. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. It is uncomfortable. I, I, I readily admit it. First time you do it, especially. And then the second time and the third time, right? You, you get used to it. It is uncomfortable to realize that as a leader, as a military officer, for example, and then COIC, supervisor, team lead, floor manager, sales manager, whatever it is, it is uncomfortable to realize that you are responsible and can be held accountable for things that you cannot control, cannot see cannot even know about sometimes. The Minot Missile Complex is 8,600 square miles, and it's the smallest of the three. You, you, no one could argue with me, I, I don't think. I, I don't like to use absolutes. I cannot think of a scenario in which a wing commander who was responsible for all the base facilities and 8,600 square miles worth of stuff I cannot think of a scenario where that wing commander would know everything that's going on inside that complex and where everybody is. And we have the technology to know where everyone is, but that wing commander, that senior colonel, has no time whatsoever to try to track hundreds of people, all these teams, dozens of teams and weapons and vehicles and equipment and classified material, all the stuff that moves around. Oh yeah, not to mention, 150 launchers, launch sites, and perhaps up to that many active missile sites, missile sorties. A wing commander can't do that. They have no choice but to devolve responsibility. 
a security forces group commander responsible for securing 8,600 square miles plus the facilities on the base, plus, depending on where you are, the weapon storage area, plus the flight line where the bombers are, plus whatever else is going on at the base, cannot keep track of where every single airman is, where every single magazine is, where every single weapon is. I work part-time in a running shop in town. Most of the work we do, you might imagine, is shoes. Shoes are often the first thing people go for and, and need to go for, frankly, if they're just starting out running, training for something, starting a new season. It's impossible even for my manager to know every single thing I have to think about and do with a particular customer. And, and in my case, she's sometimes right there with another customer sitting in the back office working on something or she's at the counter checking else, checking out someone. She can't even know every single thing I'm thinking about, looking at, trying to do to answer a customer's need or question. She has no choice but to devolve responsibility and let me handle the customer and let me acknowledge and recognize on my own the moment where I've hit a wall and say and said, hey, I need help. I don't know how to do this thing on the register. I don't know what shoe to suggest. I don't know she says she needs this thing or her foot hurts here. I don't know what to do about that. Whatever. It's on me to ask for help. It's on my manager to make sure I know I can ask for help, but it's on me to ask for help devolve responsibility. I would argue that one of the reasons why we cannot innovate in the military, why the military still plans on the last war and not the next one, is that we have not effectively devolved responsibility. Because the airmen you have joining the Air Force today and yesterday and tomorrow and I say yesterday, I mean literally 24 hours ago, yesterday. The airmen we have joining right now are now, regardless of what you think of the Afghanistan withdrawal, are essentially joining after Afghanistan and Iraq are done. We have, we have airmen and we have service members in the military who had supported Iraq and Afghanistan missions who were not even alive when 9-11 happened. They were not born yet. And now we have service members joining after we have withdrawn from Afghanistan and Iraq entirely. I don't know if you would call that the end to the global war on terror, but it kind of feels like it's the end because while we are still worried about ISIS and Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda and all of these other organizations that are, that are related, Horn of Africa, North Africa, Southwest Asia, all these same places. Oh, by the way, now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, as if they were, weren't there before, we're talking again about the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, but particularly the Russians and the Chinese that are no less than peer competitors in one form or another. So think about this, right? We have people who are joining the military, joining big organizations, joining the government, with a totally different life perspective than someone like me who joined in 2008. 9-11, still fresh in the mind. Iraq and Afghanistan, 
you know, four, four, five, six years old, but but by today's standard, still pretty new. Like we're still talking about surges, and we're still talking about counterinsurgency strategy and, and all these things. We're still, we're not even halfway through the conflict when I get in. And while I spent my career on the strategic high end of the continuum of conflict, most of the conversations we had about fighting in these environments from an air power perspective, they followed, they followed a totally different model, right? These are not uncontested environments. In some cases, they were permissive environments though, right? This, this, we were not fighting in all aspects a technically advanced adversary we were fighting an insurgency. We were fighting a lot on the ground. We were fighting a lot in urban environments. We were fighting guerrilla forces in a lot of cases. We weren't fighting a conventional army like the Russians or the Chinese, and we certainly weren't fighting a nuclear power. And yet, one of my last assignments in a combat training role, I, I, I'm watching instructors, I'm watching the, the best of the best instructors supposedly that the Air Force has to offer, just, just shut down any conversation that has to do with just getting creative, right? You, and it's tough to explain, right? Because there's a lot of course that I can't talk about in this vein, but if I walk into a mission planning room with a, with a bunch of flyers, a bunch of aviators, and there's some intelligence people, the missile folks are there, helicopter pilots, special operators, right, a whole mix of people, 50, 60 people, think about the brain power in that room, right? So you're planning a mission, and let's say it's, a, it's an airstrike mission, conventional weapons, bombers with fighter escort. I'll just leave it there. Just some generic details, right? The generic, yeah, details. You know, and, and it wasn't just the nuke folks, right? Intelligence would do this. Um, helicopters would do this. Certain communities would do this. All right, sorry about that. You will probably, you've probably experienced kind of an awkward pause. Um, I'm not gonna try to edit it out, I'm not gonna worry about it. We had, had to go upstairs and handle something for a minute. I heard some noise, so I had to check on that. So anyway, talking about devolution, devolved responsibility. That is your responsibility as a leader, uh, in my opinion, in my mind. And it's, and it's something we failed to do in the missile community. I fear that we continue to fail at it, but I'm, but I'm not there and I don't know and I don't want to assume the worst. I really don't. Um, but it's not just the missile community. I think, I think devolution of responsibility is difficult because it's uncomfortable being responsible for things you can't see or control. Right? And so, and to devolve responsibility properly requires you to, to do it cleanly, right? If, if I tell you, 
you're responsible for this task. You figure out how to do it. Figure out what the best way is to do it. But ask me before you implement your solution. That's not devolution of responsibility. That That's some amount of distancing, right? You may not be micromanaging necessarily, or you think you're not. But if everything that person does is still subject to your approval, you haven't devolved responsibility for the task, right? You have, <clears throat> you've essentially, you've delegated actions and then retained all the decision-making power. But, and maybe this is a word choice that I needed, that I um, didn't do correctly the first time. I still think it's devolution of responsibility, but you really are devolving decision-making power, decision-making authority. No one below the rank of colonel had the authority or the power to make a decision releasing a military police team for that period where we had to do that. You had to be a colonel. No knock on colonels, but there's a whole lot of us below that could have done that, but we didn't. Okay, old story, fine. Point is, decision making matters. How that this is this is why I'm so. This is why I've spent so much time and so long and so much energy trying to figure out the mechanisms by which we make decisions and how can I train that better? How can I help you make better decisions? That's why I'm so interested in that idea. Because if you can devolve decision making power effectively. You can get 10, 100,000 times more out of a team. They, they perceive you trust them. You do, in fact, trust them. So your capacity for work increases, right? Even if you're just thinking about it purely in efficiency terms, your capacity for work increases. Beyond that, you are building leaders just by doing that. Because the more experience they have making bigger decisions, the less of a leap it is when they replace you, which will happen. I don't care how long you think you're going to last in your job. You might be a supervisor for 20 years in the same job. But biology would suggest to me that you can't stay there forever, even if you never retire. You won't be there forever. At some point, you leave. And you will get replaced because that's what the institution needs to continue functioning, and that's what your team needs. So if you keep all the info and all the knowledge and all the experience to yourself, and then you disappear, then what happens? I had actually pitched an article to War on the Rocks a few weeks ago now, and struggled like hell writing it, and ended up deciding that it, that it wasn't that I, for some reason, should not write the article. I couldn't really figure out why, but something was telling me that I just needed to, to get off of it. And, and so I did, but the argument, what I, was, what I was exploring was, what risk do we run? Are we going to make the same mistake with Sentinel, the new ICBM that we made with Minuteman in the past? And, and I'm scared that we will. I'm scared that we will backslide into into a restrictive perfection is the standard type model for Sentinel. And, and if we do, 
it can only spell disaster. As advanced as the Sentinel system promises to be, um, as cool as it is that we're refurbing and that we're replacing Minuteman, and that we're putting investment into the land-based leg of the triad, as important as I think that is, the Sentinel will come online. If it comes online on schedule, I think it's 2028 is IOC, initial operating capability. If, if it comes online, 2028, 2029, 2030, somewhere in there, the, the Sentinel is coming online in a very different world from when Minuteman 3 came online in 1970. 1970. It will be 60 years almost between when we fielded, when we first deployed these two systems. Minuteman 3 is approaching his, or is past its 50th year. 2020 was its 50th year. Or, yeah, 50th anniversary. So it's going to approach its 60th by the time we hit IOC for Sentinel. But the operators for Sentinel will have grown up in a totally different world, will have come of age in a different world, will have, will have seen conflict evolve differently. Right, because the, the operators who, who operate the Sentinel weapon system, if they are lieutenants in 2028, 2029, 20, 2030, 2032, more realistically. So they will be college students in 27, 28, 29. High school students before that. They're in middle school now. They're in middle school now. They're 10 years old now. Okay, I just thought of this, and this is depressing. Um, a kid who is 10 years old right now, who could be a lieutenant and a crew member on the Sentinel in 2032, was born in 2012. I, I think I had Facebook for five years by that point, or six years by that point, right? Facebook, 06, it went out to the college kids. Your lieutenants who are going to run the Sentinel weapon system will have grown up in a totally different world than yours. So don't try to lead them like you were led in the early 2000s when no one gave a shit and everybody was focused on Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, a little bit of Korea, a little bit of Iran, dabbled in, right? People made fun of, Rip, of Mitt Romney in the 2012 campaign when he said Russia is the U.S.'s greatest geopolitical foe. foe. He got made fun of, and look at us now, right? We're circling back. I don't care what you think of Mitt Romney. I'm not, not providing you a political message. I'm, I'm simply saying that terrorism is a big problem. Extremism is a big problem. But Russia never went away. China never went away. These problems never went away. We chose to ignore them. And, and our ability to innovate to meet these challenges, which are future challenges that our creative young minds in the military have thought of and want to think of, but for their leadership telling them, stay in your lane. 
you have the people, you have the intellectual firepower in your units right now to think through these challenges, which comes to my second point, right? So I, so I think I've, I've, I've beat up deflect, or uh, God, I think I've beat up devolve. Second item, second word that I want you to take away from this is flex. Flex or adapt, perhaps, for, for a different word, right? I, I don't know who first said it. I learned it as attributed to Eisenhower, but I don't think it was Eisenhower who originally said this, right? Some version of no good plan survives first contact with the enemy. No good plan survives first contact with reality. Eisenhower was a master planner and if the history that I've read is correct, didn't even, didn't lead or see combat really until he was a one star. Like because of his timing and his assignments, he worked for George Marshall in the Pentagon, in the, war, in the Department of the Army in World War II. Eisenhower had no combat experience, but he was a master planner and he understood that no matter how many steps you take in putting the right hardware, the right people, all the equipment, all the ammunition, and the food, supplies, medical stuff, if you, no matter how much you put together into a package and build a plan, something's going to go wrong. Something's going to break because with at first contact with the enemy, the enemy gets a vote. I'm sure you've heard that before. The enemy gets a vote. A leader has to be able to flex, and by extension, you have to allow your people to flex. Steve Blank, in that podcast episode, makes kind of making a joke, but not really. When he says, um, you know, he, he, he quoted some statistics from World War II, and I think he said in a, in a two and a half year period, we went from seven aircraft carriers active in the Navy to 110. We built dozens upon dozens of warships inside of two years. You have to think about, right, while, while we saw the specter of war coming, we didn't officially declare war until 1941. And we were still declaring war on the minor allies of of Germany on the minor Axis powers in 1942. So in the span of time from when we entered the war to 1945, think about what we built, the number of B-17s, B-29s, the number of battleships, aircraft carriers, not to mention the millions of rounds, small arms, large shells, explosive devices of other types, all the food stores, all the other equipment, ground vehicles. We, we built multiple navies inside of a two-year span. And as Steve Blank puts it, we can't even get 
paperwork routed through the Pentagon to build a system now in two and a half years. He, he might be being facetious. I have never worked in the Pentagon, right? So I will I'll be the first to say, like, I don't know. But is it far off? It, it, it would take a month or two to route paperwork inside of a missile wing of 1,600 people going up one chain of command four people between me and the wing commander and it would take a month month and a half now i'm not building the next generation fighter plane but to prime example to get what we called an eal an entry access letter or list signed by the wing commander which lets people come on to a missile site to get one of those things routed up the chain and signed and then routed back down could take months plural because everybody gets a vote everybody's got a say and everybody has their i's to dot and t's to cross and if i haven't crossed my t at the right height of the t stem then you get to push it back and tell me to do it over again so so we're not used to flexing we don't we don't flex past the rules around the rules we don't know the rules well enough to flex them in the first place So it's no wonder we're not innovative in combat. We're not innovative building our systems. And it scares me to death that the inertia we've built up over time, not flexing and not adapting in the battle space and in our combat units, will also translate to the machine in the Pentagon and to where the decisions are made in building the ship that will help us defend the country and our allies for the next 10 years or 20 years. I was debating when to read this. There's a passage that I wanna read you that illustrates this point um, from a book that I've, I've been reading, um, recommended by a friend of mine and, and apparently required reading for a course or two for Air Force folks. So let me know. I would love to know if you're reading this book just in general, but certainly if you're reading it because somebody in the Air Force said to, I'd be very, excuse me. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I would be very interested to know if you're reading it and what your thoughts are on Bomber, the Bomber Mafia, Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite authors. So regardless, I've, I've read all of Gladwell's books. Um, I really like the, I like the work that he does, and so of course this is a book about Air Force history, about the the history of strategic precision bombing, leading into World War II and where the theory came from and who the big names were. And so if you know Gladwell's work, you kind of know he can he can weave a pretty good story together from tons of tons of de esoteric detail. <clears throat> Excuse me. So here's a passage. Hang on one second. So, you know, I would recommend you read this book. And uh, so what I'm going to read isn't so much a spoiler, right? If you've read Gladwell's work, you know, it's, it's not really, it doesn't really work that way. But he's telling the story of, he's telling the story of ball bearing factories in Germany, right? It's kind of a trope, right? That when you talk about strategic targeting, 
you're not hitting troop formations, you're not hitting tank columns, you're not even hitting aircraft on the ground or in flight. You're hitting power generation, you're hitting manufacturing facilities, you're hitting um, rubber plants, right, to make tires. And so the ball bearing plants in Germany are are this common, I guess trope is a pejorative, right? I don't know, that, maybe that's not the right word, but it's this common example people bring up when they talk about strategic bombing. And, and the reason is because, you know, on, on the allied side, we realized ball bearings are critical to any rotating piece of machinery. And uh, a lot in the 36, I think it was, this is a story told earlier in the book, um, Pittsburgh, which sits at the confluence of three rivers, floods. They suffer this, this drastic flood that takes out, I think it's an engine factory, and it shuts down all this follow-on subsequent industrial production in the country. And people start to realize, damn, like that's that's a single point of failure for all of these other industrial players. And that can be a huge hit if it were wartime. So fast forward to 1942-43, and we're flying B-17s by the hundreds east from bases in England to targets in Germany. We still haven't landed at Normandy. We don't have large ground formations in Europe, but we do have uh, aircraft capable of penetrating continental airspace, European airspace, and getting past German air defenses and getting to Germany proper. So at one point we realize all the German ball bearing production is localized in Bavaria in southern Germany in a town called Schweinfurt. So we decide, I say we as if I was involved. Um, so Air Force leadership works out a plan to go after these ball bearing factories. I'm trying to find the guy's name without wasting too much time. Just read these pages earlier today and I already can't find his name, but um, we come up with a plan to hit these ball bearing factories because if we can hit the ball bearing factories, put them out of commission, that could affect anything that rotates. Think wheels, think spinning things on engines. How do you, how do you rotate a tank, turret, right? Any rotating piece of machinery. So we could hobble the German war machine with one strike. But it's such an important mission, we decide to run a decoy also. So to the southeast is the Messerschmitt aircraft plant. Messerschmitt um, of ME262 fame, perhaps you've heard of them. The first jet fighter was actually German, Messerschmitt 262. So the aircraft plant, also a serious target, we built an entire decoy flight plan, strike plan for that target to try to draw German defenses, German aircraft, fighter aircraft, and air, anti-aircraft defenses away toward a decoy flight of bombers. So who do they get to lead the decoy mission? Curtis LeMay of Strategic Air Command fame, at the time a colonel, commander of the 305th bomb group. So he is described as relentless, um, 
you know, he's known as a pretty hard son of a bitch, right? So when he gets to this assignment and he's in continental Europe, or well, he's in England, right? And tasked with dropping bombs on the Germans in continental Europe. They had to be prepared to take off and fly to Germany. And then the decoy mission was going to fly south and try to continue drawing away the defensive, the German defenses, while the primary strike mission went for the Milford factories. If you've never been to Britain, well, if you've, if you've been to Britain or if you've heard about it, right, it's, it's kind of notorious for its rainy, foggy weather. And it, I know it's seasonal also, but in the book, Badwell is describing what, you know, what we know to this day is that the British Isles are notorious for wet weather, fog, tough flying conditions. So I'm reading this out of order a little bit. Um, so the, the, the only other piece of context you need probably is um, the resistance was intense to the point where one of the airmen who had written about it a few months after the raid on Regensburg, which is the Messerschmitt aircraft plant site. So that's the secondary site, the decoy. One of the airmen writing about the experience later said, I doubt if a man in the group visualized the possibility of our getting much farther without 100% loss. They were watching aircraft get hit with anti-aircraft weapons. They were watching pieces of human flying outside of airplanes. Right? It, was a, it was a disastrous air defense. And then Gladwell writes, the attacks went on for hours, the attacks on our bombers. They went on for hours before they reached Regensburg. The only solace they had, our LeMay's bomber mission, the only solace they had was the thought that they were making life easier for the real attack, the one poised to cripple the Nazi war machine. Except the carefully constructed decoy mission turned out not to be much of a decoy at all. Here is where I, I underline the entire paragraph. Here's where I think it gets interesting and particularly useful. LeMay's pilots had been able to take off in the soupy fog of that August morning because he'd trained them for just that challenge. He had drilled them takeoff after takeoff. Use your instruments only. Act as if you can't see anything outside. But no other group commander did what LeMay did. The flight crews were exhausted from their long runs into Germany, devastated by the loss of their comrades. They were sleepless, anxious, spent. Do you know how hard it is for a commander to turn to his crews and say, this morning at 6 a.m., we're going to practice blind takeoffs because of the possibility of fog on some future mission? Only LeMay could do that. So it turns out the decoy took off first, and the ball bearing strike mission was supposed to take off 10 minutes later. But they were stuck on the ground because of fog. So LeMay had thought through worst case scenarios and contingency plans and said, the weather here sometimes sucks. 
So we're going to practice and practice and practice taking off from the one, taking off instrument only. And you might argue, if I'm a commander, the last thing I'm going to do is push my guys any harder than I already have to. It's a miracle we're coming home alive from some of these bombing runs. I'm not going to make them do more training on top of that. But it's a world war. So LeMay is unique among his, commander, his fellow commanders by having his pilots take off over and over and over again from the one, just in case. And I can't, and I've lost count of the number of times I made these arguments in my previous assignments, and even to peers of mine and even to trainees. Okay, what if this? What if this? What about this? People get frustrated because you're making it complicated. You're asking questions that don't seem quote unquote realistic. And, and it's the same exact trap we can fall into when it comes to innovating in technology, innovating in new weapon systems, and innovating in strategic plans. When we trained, when I trained others, and when I built training, I, I told the instructors, it has to be difficult. It has to be a challenge. And if we're doing our job right, training will be harder than the real world. It is impossible to predict what the real world will give you. But if we're doing our job right, it is harder to get through one of our simulator sessions than it is a real world alert mission. And I have to say the instructors rose to that occasion pretty well because I devolved responsibility. They were trained to be experts in the simulator and in Minuteman 3, and they were. And so they could rain hell on our crew members, making some of the toughest scenarios I had ever seen, so that when our crew members get out into the real world, they could flex with confidence. And I could look my commander in the eye with confidence and say, you can devolve responsibility to them. They've earned it. They're ready. I trust them. I absolutely think you should too. Training is supposed to be hard. It's not supposed to feel comfortable. And you are supposed to fail miserably in training scenarios. You're supposed to make tons of mistakes and you're supposed to get killed, reset the game, get killed, reset the game, get killed, reset the game. Because training provides you that safety net to learn from it before you learn the lesson the hard way in the real world and the consequences are much worse. In this scenario, in this, in this uh, vignette that Gladwell shares, LeMay is not doing the popular thing. And I was not doing the popular thing. We were not doing the popular thing. He was drilling his crews relentlessly to take off in the blind, in the fog, just in case. And what happens? The morning of the mission, the biggest mission the Bomber Command has to date, it's foggy, it's thick, air is moist, thick, can't see anything. 
when these crews take off on time because they've been training nonstop to take off in the blind. And the primary strike team is delayed. So what ends up happening is, and I'll actually read this portion. So that morning, the bombers of the first bombardment wing, that's the primary strike, were stranded on the tarmac until the weather cleared. They were supposed to take off 10 minutes behind the May. They actually took off hours behind the May, which gave the German defenders time to regroup and launch the same ferocious assault on the Schweinfurt raid as they had a few hours earlier on the Regensburg raid. In the end, there were two bloodbaths that day. And then Gladwell goes on to write that the first bombardment wing, the primary strike, lost 50 or 60 airplanes, which is a staggering proportion. So I think it was 125 airplanes that they had tasked to the first, to the primary strike, to the ball bearing factories. So, so the point there, you know, and, and LeMay gets a bad rap, and there's a lot of things. LeMay was also a royal asshole. So I'm, I'm the last person to condone every bit of his personality and his character and his leadership and his ethics. But in this case, I will simply point to the value in being creative and in driving your people to be flexible and you yourself being flexible. You can't add up. You cannot ask flexibility of your team if you're not willing to give it to them yourself. You cannot. And it'll be obvious to them if you try. But I'm scared we're not ready to do that. I am genuinely afraid we're not ready to do that. I'm genuinely afraid that we, the field graders and the elder, the senior leaders in the military establishment haven't flexed for so long. They don't know what it feels like. And so they don't know what it will feel like to let other people do it. I hope I'm wrong, but what, what worries me when I listen to people like Steve Blank or, or I talk with the team in our own Hacking for Defense course, when we talk to students, when we work through problems that drive, that are, that are asking for innovative solutions, right? The ideas are not the problem. We're not lacking for ideas, but we have no mechanism to implement them in a timeline that makes sense, right? If it takes me two and a half years to field an idea, the problem has passed us by and has beaten us already, right? If the problem is a military threat, I don't have two and a half years to answer to it. I don't have a year to answer to it. But, but this is the assumption we make. And, and in my mind, I attribute it in part to the fact that our that our leaders now cut their teeth in the global war on terror <clears throat> with a very different enemy, very different battle space, very different rules of engagement. It's a different world, but we continue to fall into the same trap that militaries have fallen into for centuries. We plan for the war we fought, not the one we will fight. And that's existentially dangerous. All right, the last one, the last word I want you to take from this is fail. Devolve, flex, fail. 
By this point, fail should be self-explanatory, maybe. You have to let your people fail. You have to be willing to fail. And, and in conjunction with that, you have to have a healthy definition of what failure is, what failure means. If the Regensburg and Schweinfurt raids don't happen, you can easily call that mission failure. If you return with less than half your aircraft, maybe you could call that mission failure, especially if the bombs didn't drop and you lost the aircraft and the airmen. Sure, we could call that, yeah, we'd call that mission failure. And as a commander, in those days, especially, you might have been relieved. George Marshall is, is famous for holding senior officers accountable, something we frankly don't do anymore. We're much more apt to hold the young folks accountable for little problems than we are the, the generals and the admirals and the senior folks accountable for losing whole wars. But, but that's reality. George Marshall, as Thomas, Thomas Ricks writes about in The Generals, which is a really good book I would encourage you to pick up if you're interested in the evolution of our leadership ethos and the models and how they broke down. I mean, he's focused on the army, but it's a useful lesson for any military service. George Marshall fired generals in combat. He relieved commanders who were in Europe. There are, there are stories in that book of lieutenant colonels, colonels, and, and junior general officers getting relieved from combat commands while their feet are on European soil post-Normandy, post the invasion. Now what's interesting, as a side note to this, what's interesting is that, and, and what you have to, you have to read the book to really get the full flavor of it, of course. Marshall fired these commanders. Marshall or his subordinate commanders would fire commanders. And the culture was, you put up or shut up. If you don't perform as a combat leader, it doesn't mean you're a bad human, but we're fighting a war. I don't have time with, for your bullshit. You're relieved. I'm going to replace you with somebody more effective. So, so the first half of this equation is, yeah, failure of leadership, failure in combat, losing too many men, not meeting the objective quickly enough, not meeting the objective relative to the other units, whatever the case is. But it didn't end their careers. That was something that surprised me reading that book. Marshall had a way of relieving the commander, bringing them back to the rear. So that could have been US mainland, it could have been England, it could have been wherever, another headquarters. Give them some time to cool off, cool down. And then he would put them into command again. He would give them another shot. And some of those commanders, I wish I could remember some of these names, some of those commanders, one in particular that I remember, I think was relieved as a battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, got sent back to the US and then got put into another battalion command in Europe, driving to Berlin, and was stellar the second time around. He gave people a second chance. It's, it's not rocket science, it's not that complicated. 
but in the Air Force that I remember, that I left, I was never a commander. I was never a commander. But I, but I think it was exceedingly rare, if not impossible, to see a relieved commander command again at the same level or any other level. You, you would see people pull multiple commands, but if you were relieved of command, you didn't command again. You probably didn't promote. You ended up a special assistant to somebody at a headquarters until you could quietly get out of the Air Force. So what kind of environment does that create? Of course we're going to be risk averse because I don't want to be embarrassed and end my career getting relieved because I took a risk that might sound legitimate, might be a justifiable, calculated risk, but screw it. I'm not here for long enough to take that chance, and I need, I, I need this career. It's part of my identity. It supports my family. I like what I do, whatever the reasons are. This is the environment we create. When we don't allow healthy failure and learning from that failure, and I'm not saying every failure should drive relief of command either, but <clears throat> George Marshall provides a, a critical example of kind of the ultimate punishment for a commander getting relieved in the middle of the tour, getting relieved in the middle of combat, getting pulled from Europe after the Normandy invasion. We're driving through northern France, and your battalion commander gets relieved and taken back to the U.S. Navy in the middle of the war. Like that's that's I would I would think the ultimate punishment, right? But he gave him another shot. He allowed for that failure, and worked with it, and worked with that person. Now, we relieve for far less. And the individual doesn't recover. So what the hell are we going to do when we're in an actual war? Which, to be clear, we haven't been in lately. Because, I hate to break it to you, Afghanistan and Iraq were not actual wars. I, I am not, for a minute, downplaying the sacrifice made by thousands upon thousands of service members who deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, Kuwait, Qatar, all the associated locations, Syria, Libya, the Mediterranean. We have service members in the region to this day. We have naval personnel permanently stationed in the Gulf. And they are there for, for real reasons, and they are there doing important work. So I will not for a second denigrate any of the effort we put into Southwest Asia, regardless of how you feel about it politically. But if you think about World War II, Korea to a lesser extent, not Vietnam, we have not been in a war like that in a very long time. And that's what worries a lot of people. And a lot of people who talk about the failure of innovation in the DoD, the failure of adaptive leadership, and the failure to take seriously what our peer competitors have been doing while we've been worried about non-peer, non-technical adversaries. 
that are lethal, they're dangerous, they pose a threat. I get it. I get all that. But they don't necessarily pose an existential risk to the country. We have to have some perspective. I don't know that ISIS ever posed an existential threat to the country. But there are actors in the world that do. So this may sound counterintuitive, but if you want to innovate in your organization, wherever you are, and if you're someone who's in a position to help us prepare to defend the country against peer or beyond peer competitors, Steve White makes that point too. The Chinese have outspent us by loads in pushing technical innovation to the point where they may not even be a peer competitor. They might be beyond peer level. If you have a hand in defending possible threats at that level, you will take seriously devolve, flex, and fail. Devolve responsibility and decision-making flex to the environment, train your teammates to flex to the environment, and let them do so and fail without permanent retribution. We have to start changing the culture if we're going to adapt to what warfare and what the world will look like as the 21st century progresses. I would argue this applies to anyone but certainly with my background and with, I think, the background of a lot of listeners, the military angle certainly would make sense to a lot of you. Devolve, flex, and fail. We can't spend two and a half years routing paperwork through the building. Nobody's going to care if the T was crossed correctly when the bombs start dropping when we're talking about invading countries again. Nobody's talking about that when they're watching a 40-vehicle column cross the border from Russia to Ukraine en route to Chernobyl and Kiev, the capital city. What matters? What's important? And how do we maintain that perspective? And how do we devolve, flex, and fail so that the youngest among us, the tactical level, the ground troops, the, the operators underground, and aboard ship. How do we make this system so that everyone is invested, has a stake, and has ownership? That's the way we turn the culture around, I think, and that's the way we prepare for any threat. It's not about knowing what's coming. It's precisely that we don't know what's coming. So it, it, you can't script this out. You have to devolve, teach how to flex, and let them fail, because that means they're taking risks 
that means they're trying something, that means they give a damn. And you really want them to give a damn. Kept you long enough. We had an awkward pause in the middle, and otherwise we've been talking, I've been talking a little while. I hope this gave you something to think about. It's just something I think about a lot and that I do worry about. And I know there's a lot of people worried about it. And when I talk to students on campus, we talk to them in courses like Rapid Innovation, what was Hacking for Defense. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of kids, a lot of people with intellectual firepower interested in affecting change for the better, for defense and for other things. What frustrates them is not, is not how hard the problem is. What frustrates them is the amount of bureaucratic nonsense they're gonna to have to go through to get a hearing on the idea. We have the ability to fix that. And so do you. Don't sell yourself short. Okay, I've kept you long enough. I hope you're having a good week. I hope you have a great rest of the week, no matter when and where you're listening to this. Thank you for listening, for giving the show a shot, for giving this episode a shot. I certainly encourage you to go back and listen to previous episodes if you're curious. We talk about all sorts of things on The Last Question and will continue to do so. <clears throat> Always open to your feedback and questions. Hit me up by email. You can find the email through the site for the podcast, or you can find me on social media, whatever works best for you. Until next time, stay safe. Talk to you soon.